So Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, we'll answer that today in our text, but before we get there, I'm curious how many people I have in here that like movies like me. We got some people here that like movies. I couldn't wait to see the Avengers this year. I was like, oh my goodness, the Avengers is going to come out, it's going to be good. But there's this thread in movies. There's this thread we always see in every movie we look at. They have one factor that's always going to change the whole game in the movie. It's the hero. It's the hero. It's the person that comes and saves the day. It's the person that when everything seems lost, when it feels like it's going to, it's going to be the worst it could ever be, a light comes and it saves everything. Every movie has this. What is it? Well, it's a hope. It's a one. It's the superhero. It's the person that saves the day. It's always that person that comes that everyone was hoping and anticipating. They come and they save the day, which is actually somewhat similar to what we find today in John chapter 7. We see the Jewish people under the oppression of a foreign ruler longing for the day that the one will come and save them. However, however the one to Jewish people isn't a fictional character. The one is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. They read day in and day out about a time when this king would come and he would set up a kingdom that is never destroyed. And whenever a kingdom comes up against this Jewish kingdom, they would be destroyed. The Jewish people are anticipating and hoping for this, but there's a problem. The Jewish people anticipating their Messiah put him in a box. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he shows he cannot and will not be subject to human expectations. This is why in the first part of John 7, which we talked about last week, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, their unbelief showed fully. Yet Jesus showed that he does not need his ministry validated by man. He says, I come to do the will of God and not the will of man. In light of this, what we'll do is we'll look at John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52, and Jesus is going to give the crowd five truths about what it means to be the Messiah. Jesus is going to show what does it mean that he is the Christ, and how should that affect not only their lives, but our lives. So first of those five truths, Christ came to complete his mission from God. We'll pick up in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man that they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. For I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. Yet they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. All right, so first off, we must understand that the Christ wasn't just someone who would pop out of nowhere. 
Jesus was foretold in the scriptures to be sent by God in order to bring about God's plan. Many different passages in the Old Testament gave glimpses about what the Messiah would be and do. But here's the problem. The Jewish people and the Jewish leaders had created a picture of the Messiah that was limited. They would pick and choose aspects about the Messiah that they would cling to that would best fit their situation. And what was the one that they focused on the most? It was the conquering Davidic king. According to the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies when I establish a king through David's lineage who will have a throne that never ends. So why does Israel cling to this Davidic promise so much? Well, think about it. Israel right now is in They're in captivity under the oppression of Rome, and they remember that back in the day, they were glorious. They remember the time when God delivered his people out of Egypt under the the, uh, strain of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they were like, hold on, God God did that then, and he's going to do it now. We're hoping for that, and they're waiting for that. But what happened? God made a covenant with the Jewish people. He says, if you obey my commands and if you keep this covenant, I will bless you. However, if you don't, You'll get these covenant curses, and this is what happens. This is what happens at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We have 400 years of silence. Why? Because God judged his people. So now they're clinging to, but hold on, God said that he would restore Israel. He would restore his kingdom. He would restore us. He would bring us to that form of glory. And this is why they focus so much on where Jesus was from. Verse 42, it says, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Jesus, from what they knew, is from Nazareth. And some would think, well, hey, the Bible said that this Davidic king is going to come from Bethlehem, so Jesus can't be it because we know God doesn't lie. So what happened? Well, us who know the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, though Jesus was raised in Nazareth, He was actually born in Bethlehem. As the text says, Joseph and Mary, when Mary is about to go into labor, a census is called and everyone needs to be registered. And then Joseph being from the tribe of David, coming in that lineage, he has to go up to Bethlehem in order to be registered. And while he's there, Mary goes into labor and the Savior is born in Bethlehem. So here's the problem though, they don't know this. They're missing this. They don't understand that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. They think, well, he can't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. So what took place? What's the same issue my son's going to have? My son, because me and my wife moved to Louisville for seminary, he was actually born in Louisville, Kentucky. Most likely, though, he's going to grow up in Indianapolis. So if you ask him, well, hey, Tripp, where are you from? He's going to say, well, it depends on what you mean. I was born in Louisville. But I was raised in Indianapolis. This is what happens to Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. Therefore, this brings confusion. But check this out. John, in his gospel, was less concerned about where Jesus is humanly from. He's more focused on showing, like Jesus is in this text, where is Jesus really from? In verse 28 and verse 29, this is why Jesus changes the direction of their entire question. Jesus is like, you think you know where I'm from. Ironically enough, you have no idea. The better question you need to ask is who sent me? Because if you know who sent me, then you'll know where I'm really from. This is why John in his gospel in the first chapter, he spends so much time showing who Jesus is. 
He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was created by Him, and not anything that exists was not created by the Son of God. He's from the Father. So if Jesus is the Son of God, if He is God the Son on mission from His Father, then this should explain why He's untouchable in the text that we read. They can't arrest Jesus, according to verse 30, until it's his time. They can't kill Jesus in this text until it's his time. They can't do anything to Jesus until God ordains that time to come to pass. But guess what? That don't only apply to Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, then this applies to you as well. Why? Because not only did the Father give Jesus a mission that was sure to be accomplished, but Jesus, when he finishes his mission, he also gives a mission to his church, and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, if that's the case, we're also untouchable. Now, I I don't know about y'all, but I was talking to my buddy actually yesterday as he was cutting my hair, and me and my buddy got something in common. Now, it's not the fact that neither one of us are attractive. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we got something in common. I was talking to him, and every time we talk, we'd be like, bro, how you doing with your anxiety? And I'm like, bro, hit me again the other day. Bro, I, I be thinking I'm about to die. I don't even get on Google no more. You got an ingrown toenail cancer. I'm nervous. <laughs> he, he like, bro, me too. He's like, man, anxiety. We struggle with anxiety. Oh, if you somebody like us and you struggle with anxiety, this should give you hope. We are untouchable until it's God's timing. This is why we do overseas missions until my missionaries going into these hard places, whether it be in inner cities or in these crazy jobs where you can be persecuted for being a Christian, or you're going to these Muslim countries and they'll kill you for your faith. You should be comforted because you're untouchable until it's God's time. If you're like me, what you got to tell your anxiety is that, hey, listen here, anxiety. I'm in the hands of a sovereign God that has me exactly where he wants me, and if he has me here, he will give me what I need to endure it. The Christ comes to complete the mission of God, and because it's God's mission, it will be completed, and no one, not Satan and all of his demons, not anyone on this earth can thwart God's plan. God does not fail at completing his mission. Second point, Christ came to establish the kingdom of God. We'll pick back up in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So Christ comes to complete God's mission, and now we're going to see what exactly that mission is. In these five verses I just read, the mission of Christ can be summed up as the kingdom of God. Now, I know some of y'all thinking like, Jeff, you just read them five verses. You ain't say nothing about a kingdom. It's true. I didn't. 
But here's the reality. Remember, Jesus is talking to people that he expects to know the Old Testament scriptures and what they say about the Messiah. So how is Jesus talking about the kingdom? Well, this is answered by understanding where exactly Jesus is going to go. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. What does that mean? Well, if you know the gospel narrative, if you know the gospel story, Jesus plans to go to the cross. And it's at the cross that he atones for the sin of his people, and he doesn't stay dead, but after he's killed, after three days, he resurrects. And when he resurrects, appears to over 5,000 people, and they see him with the scars in his hands and in his body, he ascends to the Father. So, so you with me now. You're like, Jeff, all right, I'm with you. That makes sense. Jesus goes to the cross. He's buried and resurrected. But what does it have to do with the kingdom? Jump with me to Daniel chapter 7. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, we'll have it on the screen, give you an overview of Daniel. So Daniel is a prophecy talking about what will come in the latter days by the work of the Messiah. We look at verse 13 and 14 in Daniel 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Did you catch that? The Son of Man a title Jesus loves to refer to himself as, comes into his kingdom. Well, this is what happens at the resurrection and the ascension. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And it is then that Jesus establishes his kingdom from heaven. Now, if you're familiar with theology, this is what we call the already but not yet. Jesus has brought his kingdom, but there's more to come. So Jesus, at the right hand of God, he comes into his kingdom. Why does, he tell Matt, why does he tell the disciples at the end of Matthew, right after he resurrects, go forth to all nations. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go everywhere and take my gospel to the nations. He's coming to the kingdom. Jesus is right now ruling his kingdom from heaven as we speak. Now, some would ask, okay, what does that look like? What does that mean that Jesus is ruling from heaven right now? Well, let me give you a couple examples. First, the gospel is changing the nations. The reason we spend millions of dollars on missionaries and funding these trips across the world for the gospel to go forth, why? It's because Jesus has commissioned his church to take the gospel to every nation. Anyone that has not heard my name, anyone has not heard what the Messiah has done for the world, take my gospel to the nations. What else does that look like? Well, this is why we pray for those who are sick in our midst. Verse 31 says, they seen the signs that Jesus was doing, referring to the different things. He was exercising demons, but he was also healing people. Why did Jesus heal people in his ministry? Well, that was a sign of the kingdom. That's the already but not yet kingdom being here. In the fullness of God's kingdom, when it comes in his fullness, there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more hurt, no more pain. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, everything that the first Adam failed and brought by his sin will be reversed. It's going to be reversed. This is what it means. This is why we pray. When someone's sick in our midst, when someone has been stricken with an illness or cancer, we pray, God, please give us a piece of what's to come at the resurrection. This is part of the kingdom of God. What else does that look like? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls disciples of Christ ambassadors. 
Definition of an ambassador, an important official who works in a foreign country representing his or her own country there. Is that not what we are as Christians? This ain't our world. This is not our kingdom. Though we're here, we're completely different in this earthly kingdom. This is why we hate injustice. This is why we fight against injustice. If someone ever tells you that, yeah, the kingdom of God, it has nothing to do with injustice or social justice and all that stuff, that's not true according to the scriptures. Why? Because we represent a kingdom, according to Isaiah, of justice and righteousness. We have an abortion clinic right down the street that's actually the biggest abortion clinic in Indiana. Why do we fight for the rights of those who are unborn? Because it is unjust. And we're here representing justice and righteousness. Why do we hate racism? Why do we hate classism? Why do we hate ageism? Why do we hate sexism? Any ism that is contradictory to the kingdom and the justice of God, we hate because we're members of a just king and we represent a kingdom of justice and righteousness. But I'm not saying anything new to y'all. I mean, y'all know this, though. When y'all got saved, y'all remember why it was literally like you had been abducted by aliens and brought into a whole different world. Y'all remember that. Yeah. Let me give you an example. So when I first got saved, like prior to me knowing Christ, BC, I was tripping. Like I was out here. Like if you'd have seen me, you'd have been like, yeah, that's another statistic. I was getting into fights. I'm going out partying, drinking. I'm having fun, talking to girls and all this. If you'd have seen me, you'd have been like, yeah, man, this guy's not going to amount to anything. But what happened? The gospel came, and it snatched me where I was. It changed my heart, and it changed my life. And, and, and peep this. When it happened, I literally had been snatched from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ. And people seen it. <laughs> Praise God. But this ain't just my story. I'm just telling mom, but y'all got the same story. I remember when it happened, my buddies, we would hang out, and they'd be like, Jeff, let's go to this party. And I'm like, nah, I'm cool, bro. I'm going to just chill at home, man. I'm going to just chill at home, relax, man. I ain't even going to go. Like, Jeff, what you doing, man? What you mean? Or I remember another time they was like, Jeff, yo, that lady over there, that young lady over there, she's checking you out. You should go talk to her. And I'm like, nah, I'm cool, man. Like, what? I said, yeah, I've been thinking about marriage. They're like, you're 17? What are you talking about? You're thinking about marriage. <laughs> what happened? I've been snatched and brought into a completely different kingdom. The reason we as a church, we fight injustice. The reason we pray for change. The reason we live different than the world is because like Jesus, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. If you look at the book of Isaiah, it talks about this coming kingdom that will be ruled with righteousness and justice. And this is how we live as members of the kingdom of Christ. Which brings us to our next point. How is one brought into this kingdom. Third point, Christ came to satisfy the thirsty. So in the midst of many different people debating about who Jesus is, Jesus stands up in front of this crowd and cries out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. In the middle of the crowd, he stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now catch this, Jesus isn't just using clever speech that he thinks cool for his contemporaries. That's not what's happening. What Jesus is doing is quoting the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 55. It'll be on the screen, Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Come 
everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, my steadfast sure love for David." This is what Christ is inviting us to. This is what he's inviting this crowd to. So I remember when I was a kid, probably around seven or eight years old, I had one thing that I loved to do. I would go into our couch and find some loose change. <laughs> or I'd go in my mom's car. I'm sure she's going to drop some quarters in that middle thing. I'm looking for change. Why? Well, seven or eight years old, I would go to the pop machine. And I would give me some pop. I love Pepsi, too. So I'm like, I'm going to get this change. I'm going to give me some Pepsi. But, but then a problem would happen. What if I ran out of change? I'm like, I got to ask my mama. And I know my mama not going to give me none. I'm like, mama, I'm, I'm thirsty. Can I have some pop? She said, no, boy. Drink some water. I'm like, dang. Dang. I'm like, I got her. I'm going to use the Jedi mind trick. I know how to get her. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm thirsty. Can I have something to drink? She said, yes, you may go get some water. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. She's not falling for it. So I keep asking her, Mom, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And finally, she's like, hey, if you're thirsty, drink your spit. <laughs> and I'm like, it don't taste good, Mama. <laughs> she said, well, if you're really thirsty, you're going to drink some water. You would drink something that can quench your thirst. Now that I get a little older, and when I get a little older, my body's starting to change a little bit more. I don't stay hydrated as I used to. I'm still drinking pop, though. I start lifting weights and playing basketball, and now, now this problem is like, hold on, the Pepsi ain't working. I keep drinking it, but now I feel more thirsty than I started. And now it ain't hitting the spot like it used to. And in the back of my mind, boy, drink some water. <laughs> boy, drink some water. I'm like, I'm going to give my mama's idea a shot. I'm going to drink some water. It was a miracle. Oh, <laughs> like I'm drinking this water and it's hitting the spot. I mean, it's hitting the spot like I got energy now. I'm not thirsty anymore. It is literally satisfying me. And now the pop, I don't even want the pop no more. It tastes nasty. It burns my throat and this water, I thought it was nasty, but now it's good. So my question is, what are you drinking instead of Christ hoping it's going to satisfy you? What are you drinking hoping that it's going to quench your thirst? The Bible defines thirst as having a need or a longing for something to fulfill your most inner being. And what do we do to typically fill this void? Well, we fill this void with finite things that was never meant to fully satisfy us. Now, check this out. Most of the time, it's not bad things. It's not inherently bad things. We typically take good things and we try to use them at consumption, hoping it's going to satisfy. In other words, what we do, we'll take a good thing and make it a God thing, and it never satisfies. So what are you hoping will satisfy you? What are you hoping is going to quench your thirst? Some of y'all in here, y'all grew up in a household, and your parents was like, if you only work hard, you go to college, and you get a great career, like you're going to be, like you're, you're going to be so achieved. So what happened? You grew up, went to college, you got all these degrees by your name, Mr. Doctor, Lawyer, so-and-so, and you're like, oh, I feel it. I'm making a lot of money. I'm, it's feeling great, but it don't last. It fails you. I mean, you got the career that your parents told you about, but you don't feel, like, you don't feel satisfied. It didn't work. Or, or maybe that's not you. Maybe it's not a career. Maybe you're like, man, if I only find me a husband or a wife, then I'll be good. 
So you're like, man, I'm just waiting for the right person. So you go from relationship to relationship, and you might find a husband or wife. And then you get married, and you find out, okay, now I don't know if I want one. (laughs) The problem is you're selfish. That's the problem. Or maybe like, all right, it ain't a relationship, it ain't my career, but I'm like, if I got a lot of friends, if I got friends that I can hang out with and party with, like, then I'll be satisfied. But your friends keep failing you. You keep switching up friends because that person did you wrong and that person did you wrong, and you keep switching it up. What is wrong? Well, what's the problem? The problem is all these finite things will continually fail you. Whatever you're hoping to satisfy you other than Christ will fail you. Now, listen to me. It's not wrong to want to find a husband or wife, but beloved, I promise it ain't enough. It's not wrong to want to make money or have a good job. It's not wrong, but I promise you it's not enough. It's not wrong to want to be liked or loved, but I'm telling you, like, listen, Jesus is telling you it's not enough. Rapper Lecrae A Christian, he has a a quote, it says, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. Why does he say that? Because anything other than Christ, if you put your hope in that thing or that person, it will fail you, and when it fails you, you will feel lost. But, oh, when the Scripture says but, you got to listen. But, but. Jesus is crying out, come to me and drink. I created you so I know what you need, and it ain't out there. It's right here. Come to me and drink. That stuff that you're trying to find satisfaction to quench that thirst, it will never work. Come to me. If you're an unbeliever in here and you got drug in here by a family member or friend, and you're like, man, I spent my whole life trying to find satisfaction in these things, and I always feel empty, Jesus is telling you, come to me and drink. Or maybe you're a believer. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a couple years, 5, 10, 15 years, and you're like, yeah, I mean, I know I trust God, but I be feeling empty sometimes. It don't stop when you put your faith in Jesus. He tells you continually, come to Him and drink. During the Feast of Booths, Jesus chooses to show the crowd that just like God provided water from the rock in the wilderness, whenever there is a wandering sinner who is thirsty, there is always a rock willing to quench the thirst. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was and is Christ. So how long will you run to these things that constantly fail you? How long? Or better yet, how long will you run away from the only one that can truly satisfy your soul? Not only does Jesus satisfy you, but when you trust in him, when you believe in him, it brings us to our next point. He gives you the spirit, and that spirit is a river that never dries. Fourth point, Christ came to give the spirit. So the text continues. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus keeping up with the Old Testament fulfillment, he shows his listeners more truth about what it means to be the Christ. Not only does he satisfy the soul of those who trust in him, but also to those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit 
of God. Now, where's Jesus getting this from? What Old Testament is he thinking about? Well, instead of Jesus actually quoting one specific verse, Jesus is actually summarizing an Old Testament teaching about the future work of the Spirit when the Christ would come. According to Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, for instance, these prophecies foretell about a time coming when the Spirit of God will work in every believer, but not only work in the believer, but they will become in themselves a way that the Spirit of God will work in others. In other words, if you've repented of your sins and you've trusted Jesus, not only does the Spirit of God satisfy you, but you will become a spring in order to satisfy others. This is part of the gospel's work. So if you're a non-believer here today, and, and like I said, your friend or your family member, they brought you here, and every time you see them, they keep talking about Jesus over and over and over and over and over again, guess what? That ain't just them working. That's not just them. That is the Spirit of God at work in them. And if that's the case, the question you ask, what is it that God is saying to me? So I talked about when I came to faith earlier. I talked about how when I got saved, my life changed, and I was taken from that dominion of darkness and brought into Christ's kingdom. It didn't stop there. I remember having conversations with my buddies. One time in particular, I talked to some of my friends and some of my family members, and I was like, y'all got to listen to me. Like, I know what happened now. The reason I'm like this, I got saved. And I ain't just talking about I went up and said a prayer. That ain't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, literally God changed my whole life. And I remember talking to them, looking at them in their eyes, and I'm looking like a crazy person because I'm crying. Like, you got to put your faith in Jesus. Like, you got to trust him. I'm telling you, he's so much more than the stuff we've been doing. Like, you got to trust and believe in him. What was I doing? What was happening? Well, it was the Spirit of God at work in me. It don't stop with you. If the Spirit of God has changed your heart, now it is the Spirit at work to use it to draw others to Jesus. So no, as frustrating as it may be at times, one of the most loving things you can do to someone is tell them about the Jesus that can satisfy their soul. To put it differently, how cruel would it be if you were on an island dying of thirst and hunger, and the person next to you had a never-ending supply of food and drink, and they never told you anything. We plead with everyone, come and drink from Christ, because the well, it does not run dry. The sad reality is not everyone will choose to drink from this fountain. And that brings us to our next point and our final point, Christ brings division. Christ came to bring division. So after Jesus gives his invitation to the crowd to come to him, now we start to see several different responses from the people in verses 40 through 52. We see some in the crowd say, this really is the prophet. This is the one who was to come. Others say, well, no, no, this can't be the Christ because look where he's from. He's not from Bethlehem, from what they know. And we have others, the officers, they say, well, hey, we can't arrest Jesus because no one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees, they're like, no, no, this Jesus is a fraud. And they basically tell the people, you're stupid if you believe in him. You don't know the scriptures. Nicodemus, who had visited Jesus in chapter 3, he's like, well, I mean, hey, y'all, we at least got to hear this man out. Like, we can't just judge him without hearing him out. He's on the fence. So why all the commotion about Christ? Why all these different responses? Jesus' presence does not allow for peace. 
If Jesus is the Christ, like he said he is, he must bring division. And the prophets, they talk about a time when Israel and the nations will be separated by those who follow Yahweh and those who don't. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is a division from those who follow Christ and those who don't. This is why John and his gospel, he always gives you two answers. Either you'll be of the light or the darkness. You'll choose life or you'll choose death. Either you're a believer in Jesus or you're an unbeliever condemned. So how do we take something as hard as this division and how do we apply that to our lives? Let me give you two ways. First, if division must take place, let it be because of Christ and not because of you. Let me say that one more time. If division must take place, let it be because of Christ and not because you're a jerk. <laughs> the gospel is offensive enough on its own. We don't need people seeing, being these Bible thumpers like, hey, I think I'm better than you. That's not the case. We preach a gospel saying, hey, I was thirsty and he gave me something to drink. I want you to have it as well. <laughs> if division must take place, let it be because of Christ and not because you. Secondly, do not compromise your faith when you're persecuted for what you believe. You must stand on the truth. So I, I love sports. And I was actually looking through some of my social media, hearing all the sports updates, seeing what LeBron's going to do next year in the Lakers. I'm a LeBron fan for those who hate it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but I'm on my sports stuff, and I come across this story that shocks me. It was a story about Mark Jackson. So there's this interview to take place, and if you know the Pacers, Mark Jackson used to be a player on the Indiana Pacers. He ends up retiring, and he actually becomes a coach for the Golden State Warriors. So Mark Jackson, he's the coach of the Warriors. He actually puts together this team that goes on to become the dynasty that we're seeing before us today. Yet something happened. Mark Jackson was let go. He was let go from his position. Now, I always wonder, what happened to Mark Jackson? Somebody finally asked it. So there's this interview I came across, and Andre Iguodala, who's actually a player for the Warriors, someone asked him, hey, Andre, what happened to Mark Jackson? And he's like, man, you know, honestly, I think it was some politics that played into it. Um, you know, people looked at moral issues different than he did, man. But I honestly think, like, like it was basically some politics. And like, what do you mean by that? But I was like, well, Mark Jackson was a Christian, man. Like, he's a Christian. Like, he loves God. And he never forced us to, like, come to his church or do Bible studies or nothing like that. But everybody knew that this dude was a Christian. I mean, there's other believers on our team. And Mark Jackson, like, he would be open about his faith. Some people in our higher ranks of our organization didn't like that. We have one guy who's actually big in our organization. He's a homosexual. We also have another guy who's actually an atheist. And they had a problem with Mark Jackson's view on morality. So they let him go. They asked Andre Godala in this interview, they said, are you telling me he was blackballed for his belief in Jesus? And he was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. You must stand on the truth of God. This division that comes, it's not because of you, it's because of Christ. Christ's presence alone brings division. And because of this, Christ will ask every single person, which side will you be on? Will you choose life and drink from me? Or will you reject me and die of thirst? Let me bring this all together. Let me sum up these 27 verses. Christ came 
to complete the mission from his father. Christ came to establish the kingdom. Christ came to satisfy the thirsty. Christ came to give the spirit. And lastly, Christ came to bring division. Let me, let me leave you with this. If you're an unbeliever here and you spent your whole life running away from Jesus, trying to find satisfaction in these things that constantly fail you, my hope is that you would hear Jesus' invitation and come to Christ. Come to him. You can't sin enough that his death on the cross to atone for our sins cannot cleanse. He will make you new. He will save you. He says, come to me. And to the believer who's struggling in their faith, forgetting that the same Jesus that satisfied you then is the same Jesus that can satisfy you now, Jesus is also telling you, drink from me. And if you sat here this entire time as I was preaching and you was like, I know somebody that's thirsty. The message ain't doing what it was supposed to do. This message is for you. This ain't for someone else. We all, both unbelievers, he gives the invitation, but believers, he says, come and drink from me. Drink from Christ. Let me sum it up. I'm going to quote, sir. I'm going to quote an African church father, St. Augustine, who was actually from the fourth century. He grasps what it means to come to Christ, and he lays it to page. He says, you called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and I thirst for more. You touch me, and now I burn for your peace. Jesus yelling out to that crowd is the same thing he's yelling out to us right now. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to hear these truths in the Bible when we think about someone else. But the reality is, God, it's not just an invitation for them, but it's an invitation for us. God, you satisfy us not only then, but now. God, I pray for my brothers and my sisters, those here, that we would see just what type of fountain of water we have in you. Holy Spirit, work in us to such a way that we will be satisfied, that we will continually thirst after you. And when we thirst, we run to you. Also, God, make us witnesses. Let us witness and let us be a well that does not dry up. And we go to the nations and we go to our neighbors and those around us, giving them the same invitation you've given to us. Come and drink. And I pray you do that for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.